0: Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Miradian, and hope that everyone is taking time this Veterans Day to recognize all who have served in uniform to defend the nation. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell since 1935. Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at BellFlight.com. Another crazy week on Capitol Hill as the U.S. government runs out of money next week unless lawmakers appropriate more funding. Aid for Israel and Ukraine hang in the balance. Censures and dysfunction reign. Senators are proposing changing the body's rules to prevent another Tommy Tuberville in the future from ever again taking the chamber hostage. The latest GOP debate, Trump and Biden's poll numbers Tuesday's election results and deepening fissures among Democrats. Uh, This as West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin uh, said on Thursday that he wouldn't seek re-election next year, a seat that is very likely to tip Republican and shift the balance of power in the Senate. While publicly defending Israel against international criticism for its campaign against Hamas in Gaza, Washington is also exerting pressure on Jerusalem to allow humanitarian pauses and engineer Palestinian authority control over Gaza and a two-state solution. And even Kiev's most ardent supporters are asking what more can be done to help Ukraine reclaim territory seized by Russia, this as Russia's capabilities steadily improve. Washington and Beijing re military military-to-military contacts to help cool tensions between the two rivals as Australian Prime Minister Anthony Albanese meets with Xi Jinping in the Chinese capital, working to tamp down tensions between the countries that flared after Australian officials called for an investigation into COVID's origin. Joining us today to discuss the week in Washington and around the world are Dr. Patrick Cronin, the Asia-Pacific Security Chair at the Hudson Institute Think Tank, Michael Herson, the president of American Defense International, one of Washington's top defense and aerospace lobbying firms, former Pentagon Europe chief Jim Townsend, who is now with the Center for a New American Security and the co-host of the Brussels Sprouts podcast, a must for anyone interested in the transatlantic alliance and former Pentagon Comptroller Dr. Dov Zakheim, who counts the Center for Strategic and International Studies among his many affiliations. Everybody, welcome back. It wouldn't be um, the end of the week unless we were talking. uh, Disclosure to the audience, we are recording this late on Thursday uh, to uh, have it issued uh, early uh, on Friday morning. Michael, walk us through absolutely crazy week. Uh, Let's start with the CR and appropriations and whether or not we're going to have another shutdown
1: because we're about a week away. Well, as you mentioned, the government shuts down next week. Uh, the new speaker has not revealed how he plans to keep the government open. And the House had to yank two of their uh, spending bills from the floor this week. But otherwise, everything is great. So let's, uh, <laughs> so let's start with. Why uh, are we complaining?
0: Yeah, yeah exactly. Have a good time. Enjoy the right. holiday.
1: Mm-hmm. So uh, so the continue resolution. So the. Uh, as you mentioned we run out of money next week uh we do not know what the plan is in the house uh, to comply with what they call the 72-hour rule uh, we expect the cr to be released in the house on saturday uh, with a vote planned on tuesday uh, it looks like they're exploring at least three different options right now uh, the laddered cr which we talked about last week where the house would pass two stop back funding stopgap funding packages uh, one that would extend four of the non-controversial spending bills until early december And the second package would extend the other eight bills until uh, mid-January. They're also discussing extending them into January and February, but we'll see if that's the option they go with, although no one knew what the heck a laddered CR was until last week. Then they're also looking at the possibility of a clean uh, CR with no supplemental uh, attached to it. Uh, Now, the Democrats have said that that's the only thing they'll support is a clean CR, and a clean CR would require uh, Democratic votes, but without attaching the supplemental, Uh, spending, that could be problematic with the Senate. Uh, The last option seems to be getting jammed by the Senate. So if the House passes a CR on Tuesday, uh, depending on what it is, the Senate says, thank you very much. Here's ours. And now we're at the end of the week. And if the House doesn't pick that, doesn't pass that, uh, then we have a shutdown. It's also possible the House decides to jam the Senate with their CR. They could possibly pass theirs on Tuesday and adjourn and fly home and dare the Senate not to pass theirs uh, and send something back to an empty chamber. Uh, That idea was actually floated to me by a member over lunch yesterday. So next week will be a very interesting week. Uh, Now, on top of that, we continue to have dysfunction on the appropriations side. The the plan was to pass two appropriations bills this week, the Department of Transportation Appropriations Bill and the Financial Services appropriations bill both were pulled from the floor because they did not have the votes to pass and this is the problem with going back on the debt ceiling legislation that was agreed to on a bipartisan basis because now the republicans want to pass these bills at lower than agreed upon levels they can only pass them with the republican only votes so they have to not only lower the spending levels but put a lot of poison pill policy riders in them you know so for example the problem that the chairman of the transportation subcommittee faces which is tom cole uh, who will probably be the next uh, senior Republican on the full committee after Kay Granger retires, you know, he says, look, uh, he's got about eight to 10 Republican congressmen who oppose the Amtrak cuts in his bill. And he's got another eight to 10 who want to get rid of Amtrak altogether. But the problem is with a four seat majority, he needs both sides to vote for the bill. Uh, so he's stuck. Uh, the financial services bill, uh, it would cut, uh, IRS funding by 9% and the treasury by 8%. Uh, so they can't get support on that. Then they have the, uh, Agriculture bill, who we've seen already that, that's in no man's land, uh, and that was tanked primarily because of the nationwide ban on the mail delivery of abortion pills and steep cuts in farm programs. Then we have the Commerce Justice State bill and the Labor HHS bill that can't even get out of committee that, that they're so bad. Commerce Justice State would cut the FBI dramatically, and a lot of Republicans don't, don't agree with that. Um, and uh, Labor HHS has dramatic cuts at the Health and Human Services and uh, health research and uh, issues around family planning. So the idea of passing 12 individual appropriations bills is, is, is fading by the day. Uh, so I, I, I think that, you know, the new speaker needs some time to figure this out and, and, and also we need some cooperation from the Senate. Remember, the Senate's only passed three of their appropriations bills. Now, their plan is to take the, next, the last nine and put them what they're calling a maxi bus. So that remains to be seen, too, when or if they can get that done, because it took them seven weeks just to consider the, the three bill package. So uh,
0: stay tuned. So so how are you gaming this, right? Are we going to have a short a shutdown, a brief shutdown, right? I mean, folks are gaming that, well, they'll close it during Thanksgiving because paychecks don't get issued. How does this play out? Because nobody's going to do 12 appropriations bills. We're hearing absurd ideas like Maxibus and minibus was dumb enough, but now we have Maxibus and now we have ladder, whatever that means. How do you see this unfolding and what's the impact
1: on the department? So look, I still don't. I don't believe we're going to have a shutdown next week. I think that uh, the Senate is going to jam the House uh, with with a CR that will keep the government open until December. Um, now, then negotiate separately uh, the the supplemental package, you know, for for Ukraine and Israel. Uh, and you know, even now you have um, Mitch McConnell saying that Republicans are not going to support this $100 billion supplemental package, including the Ukraine funding, which he supports without Republican-approved fixes to the border issue, which includes policy changes and money. Uh, And and as we mentioned last week, the White House is saying no on policy changes. The Democrats in the Senate are saying they want a huge bipartisan deal. I mean, there's no way we're going to pass comprehensive immigration reform by the end of the year or even by the end of next year. So, uh, you know, I, I feel like the, the administration and the Democrats in the Senate are repeating the same mistakes they made when it came to the debt ceiling uh, deal with they refused to negotiate, found themselves up against the wire and then had to get stuck negotiating a bad deal that I think they're going to have to give in on some of these policy issues uh, in addition to the money to get the Ukraine package passed. And I think Republicans are trying to give them a way to get it passed. They want to get it passed. So you've got to tie it to the border, number one. And number two, I've got either folks in the House, for example, Congressman Mike Garcia who's a Naval Academy grad, F-18 pilot, serves on defense appropriations, has put out you know, a very nice you know 10-page uh, glossy addressing the Ukraine funding debate. Uh, and he says in here too, like what we've, what we've been talking about, the president's just not done a good job of explaining to the American people why this is important to our freedom and democracy. And he says that any war effort funded by American taxpayers should have the support and understanding of the taxpayers and their representatives in Congress. And I think he's exactly right and this whole package. At 60 billion is not being sold properly because half of that 30 billion doesn't even go to ukraine it goes to replenish our existing stockpiles and you know right. this congressman has taken the initiative himself to meet with the head of omb to explain that to them like we're not selling this right here's some of the things that you need to do and again to making sure that some of this non-defense money that we've talked about you know show after show that the debt republicans are not going to support gets covered by our european allies and that we focus more on, on the military aid so I, I, there is a path forward if, if both parties can, can see it and, and work together on that. Um, let
0: me uh, take you. So just very briefly, where do you think we are on Israel and Ukraine aid? Right. I mean, two allies in need uh, and it obviously are in significant need. And we'll hear from Jim about Ukraine in a minute. But what's what's your sense on how this.
1: Well, as I mentioned on Ukraine, I, I do think eventually Ukraine is going to get funded. It's just a question of how I think the administration is going to have to cut a deal Um with the Republicans when it comes to border policy and kind of break up that package and explain what it is and isn't. I mean, again, I mean, Mike Garcia says in the paper that he put out as someone who has spent the plurality of his adult life training to fight Russians, I understand better than the most the value of beating Russia in this conflict and the consequences of Ukraine losing this war. So you've got a willing partner on the Republican side. You've just got to figure out how to work with them. I also feel the Israel aid will also get passed as well, but, Um, That's also going to be, you know, continue to cause, I think, some trouble within the Democratic Party. That issue is becoming difficult. We saw, you know, that, for example, uh, earlier this week that there was the uh, censure uh, resolution against Rashida Tlaib, uh, where, uh, you know, she's the, the one that failed last week was Marjorie Taylor Greene's. This one passed, which was Rich McCormick, which was much more tailored and really went after her for promoting false narratives regarding the attack on October 7th. Uh, calling for the destruction of Israel and continually, knowingly spreading false narrative about the bombing of the hospital. And 22 uh, Democrats voted for uh, that resolution. Uh, so, and, and, uh, and we also see a lot of Jewish donors very furious with Democrats uh, for not showing more outrage about the slaughter of you know, families and friends that they have in Israel. But we also see that against the Republicans as well, who are very upset that the Speaker tried to tie this offset of the IRS uh, to Israel funding. So right. you know tempers are flaring. And now you know we saw um, on the Republican side, uh, uh, former Speaker McCarthy did an interview attacking Matt Gates, uh, attacking Nancy Mace, uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, when her uh, her uh, resolution failed, she started attacking members that voted against it and tweeted out their names. She got into a spat with Chip Roy, who uh, told her she should go chase Jewish space lasers. She went after him calling him uh, uh, Colonel Sanders. I mean, there is really simmering uh, there. And now we're starting to see uh, knowledge that you mentioned Joe Manchin say he's not going to run. But now Derek Kilmer announced today. I'm surprised he's not going to run. Right. And he's a leading member of the Defense Appropriations Committee, very thoughtful guy, uh, where I think members are starting to say, you know what, this job sucks and we're not getting anything done. It's not fun. Our pay hasn't been raised in in a long time. And we're going to have a terrible brain drain here.
0: Uh, I, well, I mean, there would someone who argue that the, the brain has been draining uh, for uh, some time, uh, but I'm I'm not I'm not I'm not judging. They're your your colleagues and friends and people you've got to work with. You know, you talked a little bit about the censures uh, and uh, the dysfunction. Um, you know, one of the things that we didn't mention, just very briefly, our senator is going to go for this rule change to prevent hostage taking in the future. Amy Klobuchar uh, is one of the driving forces behind this. And actually, there are a number of lawmakers who think, you know what, it might be time to change the rules. I mean, is this going to pass? And does that then, or does a bigger mechanism to allow the passing, right, uh, of uh, military promotions that have been gummed up by Tuberville to get through?
1: Well, look, nothing in the Senate happens quickly, right? So first, uh, the Republican senators gathered earlier this week with Tuberville. Uh, to weigh their options on this. And no consensus was emerged, even though I think Tupperville is looking for a way out. Um, and I think some of the G- senators can use his intrans- uh you know, his refusal to back this to justify uh, supporting this resolution. Uh, now, Reed and Senator's resolution has to clear the rules committee first. So I believe it will, because the Democrats uh, you know, have the majority there and it will get out of rules. That still gives them time to work out something with Tupperville. If not, when this goes to the floor, um, I think the Republicans will vote for it. But Tuberville has expressed a desire to get this behind him. Uh, he just needs to show win. So I, th- I know he said he's going to be talking to the defense secretary. Hopefully they can figure out some kind of bone to throw him where he uh, lets down uh, his hold. Otherwise, I do think that this has a good chance of passing, but it won't be anytime soon uh, in the sense of our calendar before Thanksgiving.
0: You've got to run. And I have uh, one more big uh, uh, question to ask you. Um, Tuesday's election was seen uh, as a win for Democrats. Uh, We had another debate uh, that Donald Trump missed. Um, Poll numbers are out for both Trump and for uh, Biden. Uh, And as you discussed, right, I mean, a lot of tensions in the Democratic coalition, not just about Biden, but the new poll numbers, excuse me, not just about Israel, but new poll numbers Uh, and even the likes of David, David Axelrod saying, look, you know, Biden's either got to step aside or really step it up in in terms of selling himself, because I'm not Trump, might not sell. And you and I have been talking for a long time. What sort of odd bedfellows, you know, Trump Haley, you know, win over all of those middle people where they wouldn't vote for Trump, but they might go for Trump Haley uh, at the end of the day, right? I mean, people who don't think that Donald Trump will get could get reelected here, I think are whistling past all manners of graveyards because You know, there's all sorts of things Joe Biden could do. He's not going to get credit for him. And there's things he hasn't done that he's getting blamed for. So ultimately, where where are we in the political dynamic now, as you see it, even though, you know, it's it's a little less than a year now to the election.
1: Uh, Well, look, I I think that you're right. I mean, the the possibility of Trump coming back is, is very real and the numbers for Biden are not great. I think Democrats are making big mistakes by not rallying around Biden. Uh, It's too late. He is going to be their nominee and they need to have rally around him. At the same time, I agree that Biden does need to step up his game. Uh, And there are a lot of existential threats out there to him. I mean, the fact that Cornell West is pulling at four percent is a big threat to him. And now with Manchin not running for election, you know, there's speculation is Manchin going to run on on the no labels ticket as a third party candidate. And that would almost ensure that Trump would get reelected. Uh, right. But I will say that, look, I mean, a year ago, which which now, there
0: are some who say that that that, you know, he would like to see that just dessert served to Democrats who he feels right. Kind of kept sticking it to him.
1: I don't know. I mean, I, he's he's has a lot of solid relationship with his Democratic colleagues. I'm not, I think if he runs, he runs to win. People don't run to be spoilers. They run to win. Right. Um, but look back in in, in, the, in the 2012 campaign in, in this time and back in 2011. Mitt Romney was ahead of Obama by eight points in the polls. And Romney did not become president, right? So I, we still have a long time. And again, the only poll that's going to matter is on November 5th of, of 2024. And again, what happened on Tuesday was uh, really was bad for Republicans. I mean, the off-year election is a bellwether, whether people want to say so or not. And you know the, the fact that the Democrats flipped the House of Delegates in Virginia when you have a very popular Republican governor in Glenn Youngkin, when people were talking about Youngkin jumping into the presidential race. Well, that put a stop to that right away Uh, in Ohio, which is, you know, also becoming redder uh, every year. I mean, they enshrined the right to abortion in their constitution and legalized marijuana and Kentucky, which is a very deep Republican state. uh, The Democrat governor, Andy Beshear won another term, Uh, not to mention in New Jersey uh, where Democrats ran the table again there and expanded their majorities in the state legislature. So I am, you know, I still think that the, that this race is uh, anybody's to, to win or lose. There's a lot of time. Uh, the debate last night, you know, could be was entertaining. To agree, I, I, I couldn't watch the whole thing. I mean, I cannot stand You're Vivek so Ramaswamy, and I can't understand why he's considered a legitimate presidential candidate. And frankly, some of the things he said, uh, you know, he was uh, was almost parroting Neville Chamberlain and Adolf Hitler when he said that. Uh, that Ukraine should give up the Donbass regions and surrounding areas because they're Russian speaking. Well, it's the same argument that they use when Hitler took the Sudetenland and ended up taking all of Czechoslovakia. I mean, it was uh, really uh, an, an odd debate. Uh, and I think in the end, all they're, all they're doing there is competing for second place because I just don't see how Trump is not the nominee. Uh, indeed. Uh, absolutely uh, fascinating. A quick
0: word from our sponsors. Bell sponsors our daily podcast. HII sponsors our global coverage. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. And GE Aerospace sponsors our air and naval uh, coverage. Uh, and I want to go to uh, everybody on the team now and kind of go around the horn and get a, uh, have each of you take a bite uh, at this sample. It's been an extraordinary uh, week. Uh, Anthony Blinken has been doing shuttle diplomacy across uh, the region. Uh, and the combination of the president embracing BB as well as these efforts uh, appear to uh, be having a dynamic United States and many of its allies are supporting Israel uh, in its right to defend itself and indeed to bring those uh, responsible uh, for the crimes of October 7 to justice, while pressure still mounts on Israel uh, in terms of the humanitarian toll of the innocent people who are craw- caught in this uh, crossfire. Uh, that said. Many of the things that Antony Blinken has recommended are now beginning to happen, showing that behind-the-scenes diplomacy is, is working. Um, you know, Blinken recommended Israel uh, Institute humanitarian pauses, Israel is greed, and now four hours a day, uh, where fighting stops to allow aid in and refugees to evacuate from Gaza City. Um, some folks are now able to cross the Rafah border, uh, whether severely injured, but also um, uh, foreign nationals who have been trapped in Gaza. Uh, Blinken criticized Bibi's plan to maintain indefinite control over Gaza, recommending the Palestinian Authority take over the Strip and the Palestinian Authority signaling openness uh, to doing so. UAE proposed setting up a medical facility. Uh, you know, I thought the Jordanian airdrop was a, was a fascinating uh, development. And increasing talk that only a two-state solution gets us to the other side of this, uh, whatever the next phase is. Um, Dove, start us off, right? Viewed through your lens, where are we in this conflict?
2: Well, first of all, you've got to divide northern Gaza from southern Gaza. In northern Gaza, the Israelis are still pressing ahead. They want to destroy what they believe is Hamas's central headquarters, Uh, And so that's clearly going on still. On the other hand, uh, I think Netanyahu uh, has recognized that if he doesn't give in to Blinken and and to the president, he runs the risk that at some point the United States will abstain on a Security Council resolution, um, as it did once uh, with Mr. Obama when Netanyahu was prime minister. He can't afford for that to happen. So he's giving away millimeters. He's not giving away yards, but he's giving something so that Blinken was able, and the Arabs, frankly, are able to go home and say, we've got something. The problem with the two-state solution isn't that its prospects have actually skyrocketed. The problem is that as long as Netanyahu is in government, it ain't gonna happen. Not only that, several of his ministers have said some of the most outrageous things. One suggested nuking Gaza. Uh, another one, at the, at the same time as this war is going on, said there should be uh, Arab-free zones around Israeli settlements. And just because the Palestinians want to harvest their olives, too bad. Uh, a, a, a rabbi of one of the brigades came out and said, we're gonna take Gaza and Lebanon. And although there've been reprimands and suspensions, nobody's been fired. And so, and the reason of course, is that Netanyahu still depends on that extreme right-wing government. So the two-state solution I think is much further down the road. I think there's an international consensus that Israel cannot stay in, in Gaza. And the United States can't stay in Gaza and the Arab countries aren't going to want to put troops in Gaza any more than they put troops in Iraq, which they didn't. So uh, there's going to have to be some other kind of solution. One of the biggest worries, uh, at least in the analytical community, is that we still don't see a plan coming out of Israel or for that matter, Washington, as to what to do on the day after. And the time to plan that is now. Otherwise, you're going to have another Iraq in its first couple of years where there was a civil war. Now, the Palestinian Authority seems to be playing along. Uh, The Jordanians have helped. The Emirates have helped. Nobody's pulled out of the Abraham Accords yet. Um, The Egyptians are taking people in. So there's clearly the elements of what could be a strategic plan if somebody were actually to put it together.
0: How do we address uh, Dove? Right. So uh, Ben Gavir... In, uh, uh, you know, he did not have to ask the United States for twenty five thousand weapons and then force the hand of the State Department to wonder, okay, well, wait a minute. We're giving these weapons to the national police that are then turning around and handing them to settlers who are using these weapons to try to drive Palestinians off their land the illegal settlers that are increasingly getting the backing of the army. We talked about some of the demographic changes that are unfortunately causing that. Right. It was interesting that the IDF's motto always was we defend the state of Israel, not we. You know, it was a broad thing that we defend the nation and all of its people, as opposed to we're backing one side or another, even though we're the IDF. Anyway, you know, give us your sense both on, you know, incidents like that, And then how the Palestinian Authority, which has actually no credibility at this point, um, I mean, I'm sorry, but Hamas is polling higher than the Palestinian Authority is on the West Bank because their leaders are seen as corrupt and feckless, even though there are many Palestinians who thought what happened on October 7 was heinous, at least they're going, well, these guys at least stood up and did something uh, to highlight our plight, however despicable it was ultimately, how does the Palestinian authority take over if it doesn't have legitimacy in the West Bank? And oh, by the way, Ben Gavir and a whole bunch of other people are actively actually undermining the position of the Palestinian authority, even in the West Bank. So how does this end up working out?
2: Well, clearly, that's what a strategy requires. Um, ben Gavir and Smotrich and all these guys uh, are propping up Netanyahu. And We have not pressured Netanyahu anywhere near as much as we could on settlements, on settlement infrastructure, on West Bank expansion. We can do it. I mean, he needs us desperately right now and there's no one else he can really look to. But we haven't done it yet. So that's number one. Number two, it doesn't necessarily have to be the Palestinian Authority per se. For instance, Mohammed Dahlan, who's I think still in the Emirates, is one tough guy but whom the Israelis are likely to be willing to live with and who could pull things together. Then you've got people like Fayyad, the former prime minister uh, of the Palestinian Authority, who's a technocrat. They've got some capable people. And so it may well be- One of the Barghoutis. any of the Barghoutis, It could be. And so what could happen is you get people who have links to the authority, but it's not the authority itself. And that's extremely important because uh, I think you're right. Uh, the authority has very little, uh, very little credibility, and uh, I don't see how they do it. And so, certainly, I don't see how they do it when you've got uh, Mr. M- M- Abbas still running the place and not having had an
0: election for 15 years. Um, let me bring Jim and Patrick into it, and I'm going to come over and I'm going to follow up with you on 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 one more point, Jim. Uh, in Europe, uh, especially. Uh, Tensions over, uh, you know, there is a palpable uh, rift that's going on and and greater evidence that the Russians have been central to fueling anti-Semitism in uh, Europe. Indeed, there look like there are a lot of Russian fingerprints as well uh, in uh, some of the activity, unfortunately, which is causing this, uh, you know, deeply troubling uh, rise uh, now. Walk us through kind of a European sense of where European governments and the European uh, population and citizens are uh, on the entire question of what's going on now, what has to happen next, and whether or not it sort of undermines transatlantic unity uh, in in any capacity or another, or weakens the case for Ukraine as well, right? There's a case to be made that we have to stand up for both of them, as the president has said. but. I think Ukraine is seen in a different light now than Israel is, whether rightly or wrongly.
3: Well, do we have two hours for this? Can I? Can yeah. I put that yes,
0: on? we do. Yes, we do. It's Veterans Day and you're a veteran, Dagnabbit.
3: I'll jump in on a couple of things. Uh, you know, today, uh, Macron
0: uh, of France opened up a uh, donors conference
3: for Gaza. And he said that, uh, and he invited, you know, the Europeans, but also Arab nations and others to try to begin to put together a, a couple of million, do- a couple of hundred million dollars worth of a package to to help, help out Gaza. And he came out and said that there should be a ceasefire. But he also said, we've got to start back up these, the two state uh, solution talks. We've got to get started on that. And so what's interesting to me is that he's kind of He's kind of trying to unify Europe, maybe a little bit here. He's trying to provide some kind of European voice. I mean, uh, Ursula von der Leyen has been doing that too. But I think with Macron, I think it seems he's looking on this as an opportunity for France to uh, to try to put something together uh, to show leadership uh, for you know his own reasons, but also it needs to be done. So I give him credit for that. Uh, mm-hmm. Uh, So, uh, so I think I'm interested in hearing what comes out of this conference and what people are saying, because I spoke to a Polish official a couple of days ago who said, I said, uh, talked about the convulsions in the United States on the college campuses, et cetera. And I said, uh, it's really something I I hadn't seen in a long time here in the U.S. Uh, And he said that it's not really uh, that happening to that degree in Europe that he has seen. Uh, if you talk to Poles and Romanians and others, they're still worried about Russia. Um, You know, there's anti-Semitism, you know, sure, the Russians, I'm sure, are stirring that pot, but they don't have to, they don't have to try too hard. It's, there's, there is, has always been uh, a streak of anti-Semitism in in Europe Uh, and in France particularly. They, the French have released figures showing how many uh, anti-Semitic actions have been taken there, which are just, uh, it's a very, very large number. So uh, but it's just, I think it's different in Europe than it is here. Uh, I think uh, it's hit more of a, a chord in the United States. Uh, and it's a generational thing here. Uh, and I, I'm not sure, so sure about Europe along those lines. Um, this is, you know, Europe is closer to uh, the, the fighting in the Middle East. Uh, they've, a lot of movements of people into Europe come from fighting in the Middle East. And so they have a whole different prism Uh through which they're looking at the fighting there. And uh, I think the emotions are running much higher in our politics on the Hill. Michael was talking about that in our university campuses around the dinner tables uh, in the United States. And I don't think it's exactly that way um, in, in Europe uh, for, for, for a lot of different reasons. So let's see what comes out of this conference. Let's see what kind of European voice we might hear. I, I have a feeling it won't be a solidified, unified voice but we're going to have views and i think that might help answer some of your
0: questions uh i would be uh i would be interested in that and i'm going to come back to you uh in just a moment to ask you about ukraine patrick um i want to get to your sense uh across asia uh how uh this conflict continues to play out and and reverberate uh the chinese have sided with hamas uh, that delivers a, bo- a blow to some of those in Israel that had hoped that China would uh, emerge as a future security guarantor uh, that wouldn't pressure them to do anything they didn't want to do, including a two-state solution. I've had, unfortunately, a couple of dinners uh, where uh, those themes have sort of come up over uh, the course of uh, many years. Um, what's 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 the sense and how is this uh, playing out in a region that actually has a pretty sizable Muslim population?
4: Well, that's on the thought of uh, and on the mind of the Biden administration as they get to host a, a lot of Asian leaders at APEC in San Francisco, including uh, Indonesian President Jokowi, who is coming to the White House before APEC. Um, it depends on which allies or partners we're talking about in the region. Uh, obviously, at the G7 among the rich countries and with Japan's leadership, uh, there was tremendous unity, uh, showing that Israel has been attacked viciously by a terrorist organization. Hamas is in the wrong uh, and they support Israel, and that um, they also support uh, humanitarian assistance so that they can try to help uh, with humanitarian pauses. But it was very much taking Israel's side. Uh, and basically, the foreign minister of Japan said, you have our utmost support <laughs> for whatever you want. So that's one That's one end of what's happening in Asia. Um, we also hear from other key allies like South Korea. Um, I hosted one ambassador this week who said, they're very worried about a three or four front war. Uh, what happens, not just uh, because they aren't, they are concerned about what's happening in the Middle East, but they're also very worried about uh, the diversion uh, and the distraction of, of three or four fronts. And this could include Taiwan, could include North Korea, um, and what, where will the United States be then? So we're back to the old question of uh, some division and some limits on our abilities uh, to respond. And they're worried about that from. You know, Muslim majority countries, uh, it's more complex. There's, there's been a, uh, some protests on the street in Malaysia um, uh, and in Indonesia, where they are worried about, uh, you know, the uh, killing in, in Gaza as uh, as something that uh, seems excessive and uh, wants to be stopped. Um, but they're not they're not openly criticizing Israel, at least not the government's. Um, it's, it's much more from civil society. In uh, that civil society is somewhat tamped down even in places like Indonesia. Um, you know, in other places uh, like um, Australia, where you had the prime minister in, in China recently, um, not overly dramatizing the issue. Uh, so it's not at the front of the agenda, but making points about uh, Israel uh, if you're in Australia's shoes. But at the same time, not expecting China to help much other than to give lip service to the fact that uh, they want all... Uh, killing to stop., uh, you know, they're playing at both sides in China as again, as always. They're putting frosting on as much of this sort of pound cake of uh, rock solid revisionism that they <laughs> are are selling really to the world. And I mean that I, I mean, there are fifty things happening right now just this week with China um, right. from this South Pacific nuclear free zone negotiations that's going that are going on right now in the Cook Islands, which the underlying uh, motive there for China is to get those South Pacific countries to put a roadblock. Into that Spin Fizz Treaty, so that Aukus is is complicated, you know. Right. At the other end, in Europe, they just had a meeting in Vienna. They're planning the 2026 Nuclear or Nonproliferation Treaty uh, uh, sort of review now in 2023, and the Chinese will organize it. They had mostly Chinese right. and Russian speakers. Anyway, I'm just saying that the Chinese are trying to stack the deck and trying to undermine alliances and responses. Asia's worried about diversion, like the Korean worry. they want unity, like Japan's leadership on the G7. And if you're in Indonesia and Malaysia, you're worried about uh, this blowing up in terms of their domestic security.
0: I'm going to uh, come back to you in uh, just a second. A quick reminder to our audience to check out uh, our award-winning weekly podcasts, Cavus Ships hosted by Chris Cavus and Chris Cervello and sponsored by HII who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters. The downlink with Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful look at all things space and our air power podcast sponsored by GE Aerospace that I co-host with our very own JJ uh, Gertler. Dove, let me ask you about this uh, request from uh, Ben Gavir. Uh, the security minister uh, to the United States for 25,000 M16s. Israel is a leading weapons producer. It could produce those weapons uh, on its own. Why would he make this request to put the State Department on the spot about supplying weapons uh, that you know are going to likely go to illegal settlers who are going to use them against potentially unarmed Palestinians, which is a little bit of what Uh, We've been uh, seeing what what's the purpose of this request, because there's got to be a messaging or other reason to do this aside from, you know, getting 25,000 arms.
2: Well, Ben Gvir clearly wanted uh, to uh, get these uh, rifles in the arms of the settlers, demonstrate to the settlers how he continues to support them, put Netanyahu on the spot as well, by the way. Um, but that's not how the rifles are going, uh, where they're going and what they're for. Those rifles are for the rapid response uh, c- uh, citizens in little towns around Gaza to prevent another uh, a repeat of what happened on October 7th and also around the, the uh, Lebanon border. So it's inside Israel. It's not settlers. And uh, the United that Washington has made demands for assurances that these will not get in the hands
0: of settlers now. Yeah. but Wasn't it originally, wasn't it originally for the settlers and then it changed into it's yes. for these other uses.
2: Right. The, that right. The, we insisted on that. Right. Uh, because we don't trust Ben Veer. <laughs> we don't like him. We don't want him in government. Um, and the president of the United States has made that clear actually on occasion. Um, there is a real legitimate need for additional rifles for all these people living in the small towns on the borders uh, with Lebanon or Gaza. Um, in terms of Israeli manufacturing, you got to remember they've got 300,000 reservists. Some of their rifles are quite old, actually. Uh, there's even fundraising to modernize the equipment that these people have, and they're going into Gaza. So all the uh, Uzis uh, that the Israelis produce have to go to their military people. Uh, The real issue is this. Will some of these uh, uh, M16 rifles wind up in the hands of settlers? And my feeling is because Israel leaks, it'll be found out within a day or two and we'll cut it off. It's as simple as that.
0: Uh, fascinating. Thank you very much, Dove. Uh, Jim, uh, Patrick, uh, stand by, because I'm going to come back to you in a second to talk about uh, the hotline being reinstated, uh, as well as uh, the uh, Albanese uh, Xi uh, talks and some concerns in Washington that our Australian uh, ally uh, might be going a little bit soft on Beijing. Um, uh, Jim, let me ask you about uh, Ukraine. Uh, it has been a, a very rocky ride. We've talked on this show that we haven't done as much, uh, you know, at the timescales uh, that we should have been doing. We heard that from General uh, uh, Zaluzhny, uh, who, you know, made, made the case, you know, hey, I'm very thankful, but we didn't get what we needed when we needed it in order to be able to progress on the battlefield. And that's one of the reasons why, absent a massive technological uh, step change We are likely to be stalemated. That got uh, Zelensky uh, involved and saying, wait a minute, that's not true. That's defeatist language. Um, You know, Zelensky has since invited Trump uh, to visit uh, Ukraine uh, and see for himself. You know, we have been saying that it is imperative for the United States to it's imperative for Ukraine to win and Russia to lose. Uh, Senator Wicker was at the Naval Submarine League uh, dinner this week. He was the keynote speaker uh, and he drove home that point about why, you know, this is binary. One has to win. The other has to lose. At this point, though, Jim, um, is that even possible? Because there was this sense, well, the Ukrainians can reset over the winter. Well, the Russians are arming up and are making it abundantly clear they're going to hammer the Ukrainians and not give them an opportunity to regroup likely over this winter. Um, What what are the tools? What is it that we can do for them and need to be doing for them for the next stage of this? Or is it at, at the stalemate that some people saw and others cynically say that the you know the administration wanted to give them enough not to lose, but certainly not to win.
3: Well, you know, all of those views are in this stew among experts uh, and, and and fellow travelers who are watching Ukraine, and I uh, it's it's caused a bit of a of a depression, frankly. A lot of the optimism, I think, has waned uh, in Washington uh, but I, I I think that's, you know, whether you call it defeatist talk or reality or or, or whatever, um, there's a lot of armchair general generals here who are making pronouncements, and I try to blow past them myself and just look at what we're dealing with. And what we're dealing with is, uh, not just uh, Ukraine trying to trying to reconstitute, frankly, it's really Russia reconstituting. It's Russia over this over the winter bringing, more forces in. I'm not sure how well trained or armed they're gonna be, but it but in terms of of manpower, it's it's Russia that I think people are concerned about in terms of being able to tap into the seemingly endless reserves of manpower uh, and bring uh, more forces to the to the fore, whereas Ukraine can't do it. I think you've seen that Ukraine is particularly trying to bring more women in. Uh, younger uh, Ukrainians as well, that seems the average age, frankly, of the Ukraine soldier is is not is not in their early 20s uh, in terms of the average Ukrainian who is who is in the military and fighting on the front line. So so there's a lot of things uh, that are happening in Kiev that cause the clock to tick. Uh, and manpower is one of them but so is uh, air defense capabilities too because as the winter comes not only will Russia try to reconstitute in terms of numbers but they're going to be uh, again trying to destroy the uh, the will to resist in Ukraine by taking out the electrical grid and the uh, and the ability to heat homes over the winter etc it's going to be another year of just horror watching that happen and so the West, if you're looking at tools, the West is going to really have to redouble the amount of air defense uh, that we're going to provide to Ukraine. And you've seen in the recent packages, uh, munitions along those lines for air defense has, has really uh, been been a, a large amount of what, what we've been giving them. Um, what will happen over the winter in, certain, in terms of Russia hammering Ukraine, we'll have to see about that. You know, Ukraine was trying to hammer, uh, well, Russia was trying to hammer Ukraine in an offensive over the past month or so, and that didn't go very well for Russia. So the, I think hammering Ukraine is going to be difficult because Ukraine has de- has shown itself very well able to defend itself. But it's the offensive that's going to slow down. The The winter certainly will be part of that. The obstacles that still need to be cleared uh, is going to be part of slowing down uh, Ukraine's advances. So, so this winter is going to be one that's going to be very frustrating, and it's going to be hard not to get pulled into this miasma of, of uh, depression, you know, uh, but we just got to stay strong and to, and look to history uh, to, to really tell us that uh, this is what happens in these long wars. You hit periods uh, where it's a year or so and nothing is happening. And uh, the political pressures mount that something's got to be done. And that happened certainly in the United States and in Great Britain, uh, during the early days of World War II, uh, and 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 we just have to know that this is what you you've got to expect, and not let it get to you. And uh, and I think, frankly, if you want to look at tools and what can the West do, I think the West can steal itself, uh, and keep giving Ukraine what it needs, and wait for uh, the spring to see what happens. But but again, the clock is ticking. That's reality, uh, and we just have to do everything we can to uh, keep Russia from reconstituting uh, in terms of sanctions and that types of things that we're putting on them uh, and then give Ukraine what it needs. But we cannot walk back uh, into a depression and say, nothing's happening, this is stalemate. Uh, We gotta keep stalemate away, uh, but keep Ukraine um, in the fight until springtime comes. Uh,
0: From your mouth to God's ears, uh, as they say, uh, Jim. Patrick, uh, let me uh, bring uh, come come back to you on uh, the question of the hotline being resumed. So even though uh, uh, China is producing, uh, I love your pound cake uh, reference, and we'll never think of pound cake the same way uh, again, uh, frankly, because of <laughs> because of that. Um, the importance of resuming mill uh, mill relations uh, and effectively the hotline and be able to pick it. I mean, it depends on whether or not the Chinese would ever pick it up. Uh, when uh, it rings, right? I mean, we've had mill-mill relations and the phone has been ringing and they haven't been picking it up. Uh, And also the uh, Albanese visit uh, and what uh, in your perspective is the right way to look at that um, because unfortunately there is some uh, uh, mis-dis-information about what the visit is, what it means um that that might not be the full capitulation that some are portraying it as
4: the first question on the resumption of the military to military communications channel the hotline um this has been essentially was put on hold after the speaker pelosi visit to taiwan in august of last year um and uh meanwhile the defense department has uh, enumerated the heightened uh, recklessness of air and sea maneuvers over the past couple of years um those maneuvers are not going to change. So the fact that they're resuming the channel of communication that, that you point out, Vago, may or may not actually work, suggests to me virtue signaling. That is, you know, this is this is Beijing prepping the boss's summit with, with, with President Biden um, to make it look like China is being as diplomatic as possible, um, but without making any firm commitments. It doesn't mean that it won't lead to something useful, It just means they haven't made any of those commitments whatsoever. And there's no yet, yet there's no indication other than some China watchers saying, oh, this is a good step. Well, what they mean to say is it's better than not talking. (laughs) But unfortunately, it's not yet really a meaningful step. It's actually making us more complacent, thinking, oh, they're going to be, they're going to be, you know, not reckless. Uh, Just the opposite. You know, they just put the Shandong uh, carrier group through the Taiwan Strait with more air sorties than ever. Um, You know, they're they're doing so many provocative things at the same time. If you're in the Philippines right now, you're very nervous about what China might do at Second Thomas Shoal at Scarborough Shoal. So I think we have to be uh, really hard headed about this. Yes, it is a necessary step. We do want those communication channels, but we should not be paying China for them. They are in China's interest as much as ours, or they're not worth it. You know, they're not worthwhile. Um, so, um, but the timing of this is extremely suspicious. Uh, you know, as the pandas are flying back to China, Xi Jinping is flying to to the West Coast, um, but they're not really bringing any gifts. They're they're really just wanting to seem uh, sweet sounding, and that's that's my concern here is that we haven't seen any concessions really on the part of the Chinese. That takes me to the Albanese Xi summit, uh, where a free trade agreement sounds like uh, in you know Australians. Full-throated support for China to enter the Conference of Progressive Trans-Pacific Partnership, which is the multilateral partner you know trade agreement that the United States pulled out of, um, and uh, well never entered, but pulled out of the negotiations before it was completed, and now um, you have uh, a, a essentially austrian China back on uh, a stable uh, relationship when a few years ago because. Uh, Australia had the audacity to say, "Hey, let's have World Health Organization investigate the COVID right. origins." You know, China just went ballistic on uh, economic uh, coercion, um, and now they've got a new labor government, and they're and they're using that opening. But for the American audience, uh, Vago, my take on this would be: Look, we have to trust our allies. We work very closely with our allies. Um, They know that the security and the geopolitical competition are different from our trade and economic interests. Um, China is trying to insulate itself from all types of pressure or potential crisis in the future. So they don't want to be overly dependent even on Australia, but they do need Australian raw materials and goods and Australia needs to export. So some of this is going to happen. In fact, this is what the... uh, Holy Fung uh discussion with Janet Yellen is about what where are our trade uh sort of interests because we're trying to lower our massive trade imbalance with China but we still want to do trade with China look at the Shanghai trade forum where um uh, you know more more uh, businesses showed up than ever um so there's a great interest still in all countries US Australia or other allies and meanwhile Australia uh, China rather is absolutely trying to uh coerce and Cajole and uh, induce um, our allies and partners to come closer to China. And we see this with Japan, we see this with the UK and Europe. Um, and uh, it's not going to stop. But our allies, we have to give them more credit. They they, they, they know what China's up to. And China is not just about uh, a, a nice free trade agreement, they have strings attached. And whether that's the huge debt that's coming, uh, you know, being called on the Belt and Road Initiative right now. Um, or whether that is the nuclear question that they're trying to build up their own nukes, but restrict everybody else's. Um, it's, a, it's a double standard. And yet they're having the audacity to call US out for a double standard or to say that the G7's inciting confrontation. Uh, it's really China that is still the coercive revisionist power right now.
0: Guys, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Hope everybody uh, has a great uh, Veterans Day to uh, you, uh, Jim, and to you, Patrick. Thank you very much for your service uh, as proud United States Navy uh, veterans. Uh, Hope you guys have a great weekend, a great week, and look forward to having everybody back on again next week. Thanks so much. And thanks to all of you for joining us as you do every day. We appreciate it very much. And a special thanks to Bell and all of our sponsors uh, for their generous support that makes this Uh, program possible every day. Uh, Have a great uh, holiday. Have a great weekend. And we'll see you again on Sunday for the Business Roundtable.